Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich and joining me is my good buddy, Jack Hahn. Jack, what's going on, man? Dmitry, it's a wonderful day for hockey. It's, I mean, every day is a wonderful day for hockey, but having you on the PDO cast is especially wonderful. I feel like we've got a great combo. People can't see it since we don't really run the video for this podcast, but the combination of your hair and my beard it makes for a, a mean, mean combination, I mean package of, of flow. Yeah, like if we can find like those Dragon Ball Z like uh, earrings and we'll fuse together and give Brent Burns a run for his money, I feel like. <laughs> Maybe not there yet. Um, all right, so here's the plan for today's show. We're going to tee it up so, so listeners know what to expect. We're going to change it up from the, a bit from the usual because usually I, I just pick one subject with my guest and we deep dive it for an hour. I thought today you and I could have a bit of a, a bigger picture conversation about sort of game theory, playing strategies, um, you know, kind of tapping into some of your expertise or some of your work in terms of blending video and data together. And so we're pretty much just going to press record on a conversation you and I might regularly have uh, off the podcast and just uh, record it and put it on the, on the PDO cast feed and hopefully listeners enjoy it. Considering the feedback I've gotten now I've had you on the show, I imagine they will, but um, yeah, it's going to be a bit different just because we're going to bounce around and talk about a variety of subjects. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. Um, do you want to start with the Leafs? Well, uh, it, it's obviously a very popular uh, topic with whoever uh, talks to me because obviously, I, you know, I, I spent three years in the Leafs organization, most recently uh, as a as an assistant coach with the Marlies, and you know, I, I still watch uh, as many Leafs games as uh, as I can, really, and it's been really exciting to see them maturing as a team and you know, really implementing, uh, their style of play. And, you know, they're, they're, they're a bit, uh, they're on a bit of a cold streak right now, but, but I think this team is really, uh, is really promising. 
Yeah, it's not the most ideal time to be putting out this conversation because we initially started planning this right after their series against the Oilers where they completely shut them out and we were going to talk about the defensive adjustments they've made and how they're a different team this year. And then now by the time we got to finally recording and by the time people listen, they're going through their toughest stretch of the season where they've lost five of six. And uh, especially in their in their most recent game, I thought, uh, got back to some of the uh, unfortunate tendencies they displayed in the past. But I think the reason why I wanted to do this conversation with you beyond just the fact that you're familiar with them is I do think they're at a really interesting spot this year. Um, they're 19, nine and two. They're leading the North division, even though they have these recent struggles, they have a plus 23 goal differential, but you know, you wouldn't know it based on the day-to-day coverage and, and national uh, referendum that seems to happen after each one of their games. But they're at this weird point organizationally where I do think that ultimately what they do this regular season beyond somehow completely flaming out, which they obviously won't in this North division and missing the playoffs. Um, I, I don't think it, it really matters, right? Like with this team, they could win every single game. And I think they're reaching that sort of Washington Capitals before they finally won the cup or Tampa Bay lightning before last year, where it's like, all right, well, let's have this conversation again after the postseason because we've gone on four years now or so of them winning a bunch of games, but having nothing to really show for it. And trust me, like I, I, I completely get how dumb the incentive structure is in the NHL where you can play 82 awesome games and then you have four to seven unfortunate ones and your season was deemed a failure but that's where we are. And it feels like with this team, um, that's certainly where we are. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah. And I remember when I was back in Toronto, like I, I was chatting with Kyle Dubas about, about something. I, I, I don't remember quite what, but, but I, I said, you know, I think as a team, we, we got to be strong spiritually. And, and what I mean is, you know, like I, I'm a very left brain, like rational data oriented person. And so is Kyle, but, but I think some, somewhere in there, it's like, you know, you don't know when your time is coming. All you, all you can do is, you know, get this team as good as possible and, you know, keep the window open and then just, you know, believe and, and, uh, and have faith that something good is going to happen. Like if you, if you look through history, which is actually, uh, what I've been doing for the past few months there, um, like one team that I, that really I found interesting was the New York Islanders because they were, uh, an expansion franchise in the early seventies. They were terrible for the first, first few years. They drafted extremely well, which is, you know, they just took the best player available. So they ended up getting, you know, Denny Podvan, Brian Trotty, Mike Bossy, uh, Stefan Pearson, uh, all those guys. But then, you know, before they, they go all the way in 1980, you know, they get upset by the Rangers who were kind of on their way down in 1979. So then, you know, it's expansion franchise, didn't have a ton of pressure, but you can see how, you know, before great teams rise, there, there's often at least one setback. And I think, you know, understanding history and understanding um, how great teams made it in the past gives you more faith that, you know, you could be next. It does. I'm always fascinated how those teams navigate those bumps in the road, though, right? Like, because we've seen plenty of examples over history of very, especially skilled teams, right? Like high octane offensive teams that uh, were perceived to have defensive deficiencies, they lose early in the postseason after scoring a ton of goals and setting all sorts of, you know, records in the regular season and having all these highlight real plays. And then it's deemed that their style of play can't get it done when, when the postseason comes and when maybe the games tighten up or the competition improves a little. And sometimes those teams completely lose their way in the sense that they go away from what made them special in the first place and what made them effective. And they try to 
sort of uh, either like to diversify their portfolio or, or, or sort of change the way they play. And usually it backfires because you're going away from what made you good in the first place. And that's not a good strategy. If anything, you want to do what you do well and then do it even better. And lightning last year, were a great example of a team that, you know, they, they made some changes. I thought it was overblown how gritty they got. Like I think guys like, you know, Barkley Goodrow and, and Blake Coleman certainly are gritty to an extent, but they're also just good hockey players who you can play in pretty much any situation. And so they were kind of this flawless team certainly added some pieces on the margins, but it would have been very easy for them to completely blow it up the summer prior after getting swept by the blue jackets. And instead they stuck with their core and uh, with this Leafs team, I thought it was very telling how they approach this off season, right? Like some of the, some of the moves were no brainers in the sense that it's like, yeah, a local guy wants to come play for your team at a, a, a veteran minimum or a bargain. Like, yeah, yeah we're going to bring in Wayne Simmons and Joe Thornton, of course, bring in Zach Bogosian. They go from, Tyson Berry to TJ Brody. Um, I, I thought it was pretty clear that I don't know how to, how I want to phrase this. That it was clear that, you know, they wanted to have other dimensions to their game, I guess, or they wanted to be able to play in different settings beyond just winning six, five or five, four. Like, do you think that's fair to say? Like it sort of felt like they wanted to bring in different types of players to maybe make their group uh, a slight more well-rounded one, as opposed to just having sort of one player type and just going fully all in on that. Yeah, and I think Tampa last year is a good example of a team that, you know, could play a possession game, but then also added some some, you know, forechecking elements on their mar at the margins with, you know, Goodrow and and Coleman. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, Bogosian is a guy who who was tough for them on their third pair, but you know, could surprisingly make some plays once in a while. Um and, and obviously he's doing the same thing with Toronto this year, but um I really do think there is something to, you know, having the Thorntons and the Simmons around just because like, they're such, you know, they grew up cheering for the Leafs. They, they have that once again, that, that spiritual belief that, you know, maybe something magical can happen. And, you know, like it's easy to kind of underestimate that, but, but I think, um, you know, it, it is helpful for a team to kind of build a narrative for itself and say that, you know, we're a team of destiny and we got to believe and, you know, th this is kind of the opposite of the, the whole like analytics or the X and O's approach that I, I usually deal with. But, but I think, you know, for a team to go all the way, I think there, there has to be that belief element and, and that um, element of like, uh, you know, belonging or, you know, brotherhood or, you know, we're, we're writing a story here. Well, let's get into the X's and O's then, because that is something we can sort of actually tangibly point to from our end, at least right now. Right. And, and, and we can point to it as the difference. And I think one of the most interesting trends to me, and I, I don't want to act like they're this entirely different team because they're still fourth in the league in goals per game. They're scoring power play goals at the second high rate. Like they're still clearly a very uh, potent offensive group, but uh, just in terms of the way they, they've been playing, one thing I did notice is that at 5 on 5 in 2016-17, they played at the fastest pace in the league, and that, that, that makes sense given their personnel. 2017-18, they were fifth. 2018-19, they were first. Last year, they were fifth, which I think might surprise people considering all the complaints about Babcock at the start of the season. This year, they're 19th in terms of 5 on 5 pace. And that sort of does match what, what you're seeing in, in the sense that I think there certainly is something to the fact that they maybe want to play a little bit differently, especially when it comes to um, defending leads. I think like, you know, historically that's something they've struggled with. And maybe if you're just playing that one way back and forth, that 
opens yourself up to some catastrophic uh, blown leads late in games. And I think they certainly, uh, both through their actions and just through conversations I've had, want to make sure that they can try to finish off games and lower stress environments and put the clamps on teams kind of like the Islander do late when they have a, a lead. And so um, just in terms of uh, that and sort of getting into the X's and O's and, and how they've changed the way they're playing beyond just the new personnel, but also having a full off season with Sheldon Keefe, uh, as opposed to coming in mid season and trying to make all these changes. Like it's pretty clear that I think, I think they are uh, by design playing at least slightly differently than they have in the past couple of years with, with relatively the same personnel. So, so I think there's really three key uh, elements to, you know, all, all the things that you're, you're saying. So first of all, is, is their play with the puck? And, you know, if you watch the Leafs, they have a very fluid style. They, they use the space very well, uh, very reminiscent of Soviet hockey. And, you know, there's an expression that Sheldon Keefe uses, and he, he calls it playing for control of the game. Right, which is pretty self-explanatory. And I think if you watch the Soviets in their heydays, like that's what they did. You know, they had the puck on their sticks, and you know they were dictating the pace of the game. Um, and you know they were doing a lot of defending, you know, while playing offense, essentially. And you know when you talk about the the pace of play, uh, you know a lot of the the public analytics um, pace equates to you know shots for plus shots against. Yes, yeah. and. And I think the biggest reason why, you know, the pace has fallen off for the, for the least from, from purely a shot volume point of view is because they actually have better control of the game. So what they've been able to do is, you know, they're, they've refined their play with the puck. They're completing more passes, uh, kind of those small area passes or those rotations. They're, they're making more of them and they're doing a better job uh, as opposed to, let's say, 12 months ago. And what that does, first of all, is, it will actually cut down on your own shots for, because now you're looking for better shots instead of going low to high and pounding it and then jumping in a rebound. You're looking to create like a mid, a mid range shot where you're, you're looking to create a, a cross seam pass and you know, not all those passes are going to connect. So actually your, your success rate and your shooting is going to go down a little bit, but the shots that you do get, they're going to be of slightly better quality. And, you know, you can see that, you know, qualitatively just by looking at the way that they play. Um, mm-hmm. But really, you know, that possession style of play has been, I think it's, it's being better understood by the players. They're executing a little bit better uh, and they have the puck more under six, which means obviously if, if we have the puck, they, they don't have the puck. So well, you know, it also, it also lends itself a bit to the defensive metrics as well, in the sense that if you have sustained offensive zone possessions, where you are kind of probing and looking for those better looks as opposed to just firing and giving away possession, chances are you're probably going to have a 40 to 50 second shift in the offensive zone. By the time the other team gets it, they're probably just trying to get the puck out and change and it's preventing rushes the other way because the guys are probably pretty gassed themselves. Exactly. So the trend that we're seeing actually tells me that, um, you know, they've been successful in, you know, playing for control of the game because, you know, their, their, their shots, uh, attempt ratio is still pretty good. You know, their expected goals ratio is still pretty good. Uh, but overall, the pace is down because the puck is on their stick more, and they're they're dictating more what's going on, as opposed to playing run and gun and you know almost out of control. Yeah, which is fun, but I imagine also very stressful if you are have a a rooting interest or if you are uh, in the organization. I imagine when you go up, if you're continue just playing that style, it probably raises your blood pressure a little bit, thinking that oh, we're just a couple of rushes away from giving this right back. 
Well, it, it, it's always exciting. It's always a little bit challenging for the for the blood pressure. But you know, if you play this way, it sets you up way better to counter the likes of McDavid because, simply put, he doesn't get any pucks. And when it, when a high end offensive player has trouble getting pucks and is hemmed in his zone, that's when you when you see the defensive mistakes pile up, or that's when you see him you know lose faith in his game or in his in his teammates or in in the game plan. And and you know if we're talking about why you know, was Toronto so good at shutting down McDavid? What's well, it's just that they, they played for control of the game. They were able to do that. And because of that, McDavid couldn't really get much going uh, unless it was just an individual effort or one and done type play. Well, they were also uniquely suited to putting Jake Muzzin and Justin Hall. And I'm just in the sense that like, it was pretty clear that they were uh, both given the green light to aggressively gap up, but also were, had a, had a game plan in mind, right? Like I'm always interested in terms of uh, how the best defenders in the league defend off the rush, especially as the game has uh, transitioned so much to, you know, the best teams are generally, you know, creating easier opportunities off the rush. And especially with these electric skaters, they can move up and down as fast as McDavid can, you know, the player, the defensemen that typically have the most success on them, obviously generally have like a long reach and are kind of able to stick to them like a Colton Preco, for example, or I've noticed like a Mario Ferraro doing this more recently against Nathan McKinnon, but it's also a team effort in the sense that, you know, a lot of good skating defensemen could in theory gap up it, no, acknowledging that they're going to be able to get back if, if the player burns them, but they're either unwilling or they just get beat and there's no one back there to, to help them. You understand? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like there's so many moving parts there and everyone kind of needs to be in unison that, that it's easy to sort of uh, individually identify just the defenseman and where he's standing at the blue line, but sort of the structure of everyone else and where they are, I think plays into that as well. So the, the one, uh, the, the second element is, is the, the change that Toronto has made in the neutral zone. So mm. I would say over half of the NHL teams, maybe closer to two thirds, they play a one, two, two neutral zone forward check, which means uh, the first forward cuts the ice in half. The second forward tries to funnel the, the puck to the boards. The third forward is on the other side of the ice or in the middle kind of containing uh, that cross ice pass. And then the D's are gapped up tight. Uh, now um, that's a system that the Leafs and the Marlies used for the previous years. And, you know, last year I had some, some discussions with, with Sheldon because he kind of, uh, he was really interested in how the Islanders defended and the Islanders used the one, one, three. And the mm -hmm. one, one, three basically is, is that, you know, the first forward once again, forces the play to one side, the second forward, uh, pressures the puck, but then the third forward, instead of, uh, holding the middle of the ice, he's actually helping the D's, uh, at the blue line. So it, it's slightly more passive. And what that does is it actually allows you to create a three-man wall at the blue line instead of having bo just both these gapping up. And so what yeah. you're seeing this year with the Leafs is, is um, you know, we, if we have Muzzin and Hall defending McDavid, well, you're going to have a Mikheyev or a Pierre Engvall protecting the weak side of the ice and skating forward just in case that, you know, if both of these Ds get beat, then at least there's someone with speed skating forward back to the net. So that one, one, three has been really effective for Toronto. Um, and you know, what, what they've sacrificed is an ability to create turnovers at the red line. But now what they've done is they've simply kind of delayed their defensive stand and they're able to shut the play down either at the blue line or inside of their zone. Once the play is forced wide. I'm really interested in, oh, it kind of ties into that. Um, 
the cat and mouse game in today's game of, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I think teams are, are not trying to juice the expected goals models, but are, are, are aware of the of fact that, um, you know, quality is important in the sense that if you have high skilled players out there, you should be trying to get to certain areas on the ice because it increases the likelihood that that, that the puck's going to go in, right? You have like a finite amount of opportunities to score in a 60 minute game and you are doing yourself a disservice if you're not actively seeking out certain regions on the ice. And we see a team like the Tampa Bay Lightning, you know, they have a very clear sort of shot profile in terms of where they're looking to get it. And it's very high danger areas. And, and we, you know, it was fascinating to me. It was watching them last postseason against, and they went through two teams that I'd say are probably the best at sort of just eliminating everything in front of their net. And especially in the middle in the stars and the Islanders and Tampa Bay was sort of uniquely suited to disrupt those defensive schemes or, or kind of, uh, challenge them more than most teams are because, and I know you put out a video about this, but they don't sort of devote one of their five attackers to just standing in front of the net, right? There's constant offensive zone movement. And, and, and so it's much tougher to sort of load up or just put your guys there and prevent shots from happening there when everyone's moving and you're sort of being stretched out and having to chase a little bit more. And so um, that's sort of that, that cat and mouse game of offense versus defense and sort of, you know, the offensive team having a clear game plan of where they want to get the puck and where they want to shoot from. And especially the best defensive teams in the league that sort of limit where they allow you to go and sort of strategically push you or guide you to certain regions. Uh, and sometimes in subtle ways, but sometimes in obvious ways is, is so interesting to me. And we don't, I think, talk about it nearly enough in terms of like mainstream, mainstream coverage, because I do think it is slightly more difficult to identify than in basketball where you could just kind of show like a, a shot chart of where Steph Curry is shooting from. And, and it's much easier to see on a, on a play to play basis. And, and, you know, to, to the third point, the third element for me of that explains why the Leafs have been doing well this year is I, I think as an offensive team, you know, you have players who uh, I, I would say have a bias for action. So, so what I mean is that, you know, an Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, William Nylander, they're going to look for opportunities to attack the puck, even when they're defending. And, and I think as an offensive team, it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive or it's, it's maybe counterproductive to tell your players to be overly passive in the D zone. So, you know, one thing with Tampa is, you know, if you, if you watch their ozone rotation, they're very fluid. Uh, they're very good at getting to the middle of the ice. But then if you watch them in D-zone coverage, they're actually quite aggressive at pressuring the half wall or pressuring, you know, under the goal line or pressuring up to the point. And the, the first thing that Sheldon did when he took over the lease last, uh, last season is um, he, he, he made a tweak in the defensive zone and made the team play more like the Islanders in terms of, you know, holding the middle of the ice and really collapsing and not pressuring too much at the point right at the half wall. And I think, you know, as they got into their series against Columbus, it felt like the players were a little bit handcuffed um, because, you know, they were asking to be very offensive uh, when they have the puck. But then when they didn't have the puck, it seemed like they were uncomfortable just standing around. And once in a while, you would see like a Marner or a Matthews or a Nylander, like they would pressure and maybe step outside of the, the team's system or the game plan, but be able to get a puck, uh, uh, cut a D-zone sequence short, and then go back on the counterattack. So the first thing that I noticed this year from uh, from Sheldon and, and his team is that they went back to a more aggressive D-zone setup where they're looking to pressure the wall and, you know, 
cut zone time short as opposed to, you know, Barry Trotz and the Islanders where they're comfortable playing in their D zone structure because as a team, they're also, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit slower, maybe a little bit less skilled, but, um, you know, they play a more methodical way that fits with their identity as a team and as players. So, you know, you know, it works for them, but for Tampa and for Toronto, if, if you're an attack-minded team, then, you know, you like to see that manifest itself both in the O-zone and in the D-zone. And, and I think this year, you know, Toronto's way more, I think they're more true to themselves, and I think that's helped as well. I've completely, like, I've been doing a lot of uh, sort of thinking about this in terms of how much my approach or thinking about the game has changed over the years compared to, like, when we started. And the Islanders are a team. I mean, it's it's a bit easier this year because, you know, they have the results, but also the underlying results are, are significantly better. But just watching them and kind of dissecting their tape a little bit, I have like such a whole uh, different newfound appreciation for how uh, how they're able to like repeatedly do the same thing over and over again to success if that makes sense like it's it's so tough i think in today's game to consistently defend because one the players are are really skilled two it's a lot tougher to to lean on them and and three um just with, with the way the game is played pace is played at and, and sort of the rush chances that are traded back and forth like if you're defending constantly eventually there's going to be cracks and, and, and something's going to leak through and you're going to get exposed a little bit. And with the Islanders, especially late in these games when they're up, like I, I especially recently, uh, they had this game against the Bruins the other day where it was like one, one, and they were just like, okay, we're not giving up anything at this point. And the Bruins had one high danger attempt in, in the third period in overtime. And they could have played another 60 minutes. And I don't think the Islanders would have given them anything. And, and that ability to, and I think I understand why people are, generally skeptical like the reason we prefer quantity over quality is because it's a bigger sample and also it's it's uh hockey is kind of a random game but it's also more repeatable but the islanders have sort of proven that they are able to repeat this certain style of play and, and that's so uh impressive and fascinating to me and that's something that i've completely changed my tune on over the past couple of years well once again you know we talk about playing for control of the game right so you you can you know, there, there's different ways to take over a game, whether it's by, you know, turning the pace up and, and you know, going for a track meet and, and you know, hoping that your goalies and, and your shooters are going to, you know, be the difference makers. Or like the Islanders, you can turn the pace of the game way down and then almost like bait your opponents to making mistakes. And, and actually, if you watch the Islanders, you know, they're actually way better with the puck than they've been, you know, let's say three or four years ago. So the D's are, you know, like uh, Adam Pellick, Ryan Pulak, like th those two guys are doing great work. Uh, Noah Dobson is, you know, establishing himself and, you know, they're, they're completing passes. Like if you're a team that can complete passes, I, I don't care like where the passes are going and how fast you're playing, like, uh, like you're going to do well, right? If But how much of that do you think is a skill thing versus system thing in terms of like, and I know you've talked about how uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, for example, make life very easy on their centers because, you sort of like decrease their set of responsibilities. You're like, okay, you just need to be in like one or two places on the ice and this is what's going to happen. And you can sort of like, uh, like an NFL offensive coordinator in a way you can kind of like draw up how that drive is going to go for those players. You can kind of like pre-plan what to expect as it, which is really tough to do in hockey because it's happening so fast and uh, so many random things can happen, but they constantly make it easier for their centers to do that. 
like how much of that do you think for the Islanders is simply simplifying it or making it easier for them? Because it certainly seems like you wouldn't compare the Islanders players to the most skilled teams in the league and say, Oh, there's, you know, they have more passing talent and then they have skilled players for sure. We're not trying to diminish that, but it's clear that there's something more at play there beyond just the actual personnel. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a question of timing. It's a question of getting to the right spots consistently. And, you know, it's, it, and once again, it comes back to, I remember his conversation I had with Ken Hitchcock and, and I asked him like, what, what is the first thing that you do when you take over a team? Because as you remember, he, he's kind of well known for being uh, almost, uh, you know, taking a non-playoff team and then immediately making them, you know, uh, competitive or even, you know, playoff contenders. And he said, you know, the most important thing that, uh, I try to establish is, uh, I try to create predictability for the players. Now, now I think, you know, maybe your methods may, may differ. Uh, I think Ken is more of an old school, like he preaches very simple puck plays, you know, like avoiding the middle, um, you know, making kind of these, uh, uh, you know, high six. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Success rate, low value plays j- just to kind of get the puck up ice, which uh, maybe it's a little bit different now, but but I think the idea about predictability and and having the players have faith in each other that they're going to be in the right spots. That's really important. And, you know, that's what uh, the Islanders are doing now uh, better than ever. And maybe that's a little bit where Columbus has has faltered because if you remember, you know, 18 months ago, these were probably the two best defensive teams in the league. And, you know, one team has gotten better and the other team has fallen way off. Um, All right. Should we take a a quick break here uh, to hear from a sponsor and we'll, uh, we'll finish up the conversation and other things. All right. You want to talk about Daryl Sutter? I'll give you the floor. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I did, I just talked about, uh, Ken Hitchcock being, you know, a, a bit of a turnaround artist and, and taking a lot of those underachieving teams into the playoffs and beyond. Um, and I think Daryl Sutter, you know, th- that's kind of what, uh, what he did in LA when he took over that team and then, you know, won a couple of cups. And I think he, he looks to be on the same path with Calgary now. Um, you know, they've only played a handful of games, but, you know, their their shot differential is way up. They're creating way more zone time in, in the offensive end. Uh, you know, they're, they're attacking the net more often. Uh, surprisingly, even Johnny Goudreau looks to be a little bit revitalized, even though, you know, they're essentially playing that same heavy dump and chase, four check, 
low to high pucks in at like that same game that LA played way back when. And, and that's kind of a, a bit of a, a Daryl Sutter trademark. Well, I'm not worried about a guy like Goodrow. I mean, it, it seems counterintuitive because of his body type and that playing style. But when you say, all right, we're going to have the puck more often in the offensive zone, that's something that a guy like Johnny Goodrow is probably looking at it being like, all right, this is, this is great for me. And he was having a, a nice bounce back season before, even under Jeff Ward, because he was just too skilled to be uh, underperforming the way he was last year. But yeah, it, it's interesting because I think it, there is a bit of a misnomer in the sense that I think typically we would prefer, uh, you know, high carry and rate teams because it's, it's been shown to lead to higher, um, you know, shot and, and, and goal generation. And it makes sense. You're not giving away the puck for no reason, but in Sutter's system, it is, there is a reason behind it, right? Like it, it, it's been fascinating to see him come in and already in just three games, albeit we'll see if it is last, but you can see all of those trademarks, right. Of like the, the dump and chase, but also the puck support um, sort of being much more intentional with what they're doing it's led to better results, obviously. And I'm really curious to see if it can keep up. It's amazing that given limited practice time coming in during a pandemic season, you can just have the same personnel and get wildly different results. But um, it's, that's kind of what we're seeing so far, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the story that was uh, th- that Scott Pellerin told me, so Scott was, the, the, was in player development with the Kings when, when Daryl Sutter took over over there. And, you know, that, that team was underachieving. Obviously they had, you know, the pieces that they had to go to the Stanley cup, but uh, for whatever reason, it just wasn't clicking for them. And then when Daryl came in, uh, what, what, what Scott told me was that he, he basically told his team to play, play fast, play tough and play smart. And that was it. Like there were, there were no X's and O's changes. You know, he wasn't overloading them with instruction. Um, you know, they were play and, and that's because I, I think the previous coach was Andy Murray, but basically the system was the same, but they just needed a fresh voice. They just needed someone that's going to kind of, you know, fire them up or, or get them playing, um, you know, instinctively. And and that's what Sutter did back then. I, I don't know if the process is the same now with, with the flames, but um, this could be one of the reasons why you're seeing immediate uh, dividends. It's just because the approach is not focused on like explicit you know, I'm going to tell you what to do or where you got to stand. It's more just implicitly, you know, play your game a certain way and then, you know, let the rest kind of flow. And, and I think this is why it's, it's actually, it's, it's so difficult to pre-scout in hockey. Like, you know, some people don't like the word pre-scout, but, um, you know, if you come up with something better, let me know. Cause I'll use that. But, um, who doesn't like know, pre-scout? Well, what well, is scouts? Well, cause like, you know, obviously you're going to scout before the game, right? If you scout after a game, that's too late, but, um, well, technically post scouting is pre-scout for the next game. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, there's what? always like, another game. There's always it's another just game. words, Netty, you know, it's yes. just words. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but the point is, is that, you know, you look at what, uh, Sutter is having the flames do and it's, it's super predictable. You know, they're, they're going to. They're going to use a strong side of the ice, find the middle support, get out of the zone. They're going to dump it in. They're going to forecheck one, two, two. Then the second guy is going to come in. Then D's going to pinch. Then they're going to go low to high, throw it to the net, jump on a rebound and, you know, ground and pound you until either they score or you dump the puck out and then they regroup and they start over again. Like really, really simple game plan. Okay. So, but why is it that it's so difficult 
to communicate that to your players so that they can be properly, you know, prepared against that. And, you know, I thought about it for a long time. And finally, recently, I kind of had this eureka moment where um, I thought back to when I was a kid and I was really into watching like superhero movies or comics or, you know, um, you know, animated series like, you know, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, whatever. And it's like, you know, I, I compare that to how teams do their pre-scout and, and the way that a, a, a typical NHL coach would do a pre-scout is like, you know, you show their breakouts, you show their forecheck, you show the neutral zone forecheck, you show a bit of power play, you show a bit of PK. Like it's very like mechanical, right? And like, yeah. you, you're almost like going down a laundry list of items. And then a lot of players tune out. A lot of players don't really see the big picture behind it. Um, and, and for me that... You know, I, I, I always felt a little bit let down by that whole process because there's uh, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to tell a story that, you know, you like we're the superheroes. There's a super villain on the horizon, which is, you know, the flames and their their heavy dump and chase. And, you know, Daryl Sutter is kind of like the mad genius behind the bench. And so, so then the question becomes like, what's what's the key to their power, right? Like, what did they draw their power from? Because once you can figure that out. And once you can find a solution for that, everything else kind of takes care of itself. And it's like, you know, when the superhero realizes that the, the supervillain, you know, uh, can't handle a certain type of chemical or can't like, it's like the gremlins, like you can't pour water on them. Right. Because, because then they go crazy, but like, it's like one little thing that you can do. And then the rest, like the rest of the puzzle just kind of falls into place. And like, I've never seen a, a pro hockey coach look at a pre-scout this way, like almost like a, you know, an epic battle of good versus evil or, you know, make a story out of it. But, but I think that's the way it should be done, especially this year when you're playing against the same five or six teams all the time. Like how, like how much more can you say about a one, two, two? Like there's, there's only so much you can say before even yourself, you go to sleep. Right. So, so it's all about telling a story now. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I was saying how the concept of dumping and chasing as your primary playing strategy does seem to kind of run counterintuitive to what analytically we'd like to see, but you know, like, especially like expected goals models, like love both teams that forecheck very intensely, but also players that do so. And it makes sense, right? You're keeping the puck as far away as possible in most cases from your own uh, side of the ice. And you're also creating a lot of, of uh, higher danger scoring opportunities on the instances that you do, you know, get in and create a quick turnover. And we've already seen it in these three games where the Flames have had a, a number of their goals scored by simply just getting the puck below the goal line and causing a turnover or a quick play that led to uh, a pass from behind the net out front for an easy tap in, right? And so um, I think it's a really, you know, you need to have the personnel for it. Like if you have certain types of players, you don't want to be taking the puck off of their stick intentionally at all times, but in certain cases, it, it does make sense. Now, the ability to do it time and time again, I think the reason why it's difficult for a coach is because you're asking your players to put in max effort, right? Like for this to work as a viable strategy, everyone needs to be getting in there and causing havoc and trying to get the puck back because otherwise, if you're just dumping it in and basically changing, you're just giving the puck away to the other team and, and, and reaping no benefits of it. So it's, it's a difficult uh, proposition for like, longevity and, and buy-in, but in terms of coming in mid-season, 
with a new voice and being like, okay, this is what we're going to play. And then getting immediate results and being able to point to that as if we keep doing this, this is what's going to keep happening. Like this is a pretty, uh, ideal set of, uh, set of events for them, I think. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the style of play is not necessarily modern or super creative, but for, for, from a from an analytics point of view, I, I think, you know, it's going to get results just because they're playing bumper cars, they're falling the puck to the net, they're taking a bunch of shots from the point, they're getting a bunch of rebounds, you know, they're whacking the puck into the goalie's pads for those, you know, juicy high danger chances. And like, like that's how they're going to play. So I, I'm not surprised at all that they're going to look really good in, in at least the shot metrics. And actually, I think that's a good segue to um, Winnipeg because Winnipeg yeah. is kind of like the opposite. And what's been killing Winnipeg is, you know, they have this great top six, especially now with Dubois in, um, you know, who can play both center and wing and who's, I think, at five on five, a much more useful player than Liney, even though Liney is one of the best shooters in the game. But so they have this amazing top six and then their defense is just uh, not, not that good, right? So how they've been able to kind of cope with that is, you know, they're going to lose the shot battle. They're going to lose the expected goals battle. They're going to hope to, you know, strike off of two on ones, three on twos, maybe in overtime, you know, with their high end forwards and, you know, score some goals in the power play. But then aside from that, it's just a lot of prevent defense, hoping that Connor Hellebucks makes a lot of saves, you know, letting the other team into the zone, but away from the slot and then just kind of hope for the best. But do those things need to be mutually exclusive? Like, did you have like to, to play that way offensively and create those situations? Like, it seems like there's, is a middle ground where you can take advantage of that skill and create the numbers game in your favor while also not um, being as bad in their own zone as they are defensively. Like I know, you know, Paul Maurice takes issue with uh, the public models that, that have them where they are. Like, listen, let's, let's, let's be real here. First off a coach saying that internally they look a lot better than, than we think they are. It's, it's funny that a coach has never come out and publicly said that they actually look a lot worse than we think they are. Um, but in this case, they're like either the worst or second worst team, I think in, in expected goals against at five on five in all situations on natural statric, they're right between the Canucks and the senators, which obviously is not an ideal uh, place to be in defensively if internally they are a bit better, which I'm willing to believe that they are because uh, we know that publicly expected goals models have their, have their loopholes and their flaws, but also, um, you know, the shots that are being recorded, for example, I, I think are, are wildly off compared to what's actually happening. Functionally, if they are better, they're going from like the 30th best defensive team to the 25th defensive best. Like it's, it's, it's not like they're going to have this model. That's all of a sudden going to have them as, as a high end defensive team. So for someone to take issue with that, I think, you know, it's clear what he's doing. He's defending his team, which is funny because they can't defend themselves. But, um, it, this conversation for me is a fascinating one. Cause I do think there's a lot of nuance, but it ultimately just boils down to people yelling at each other and saying, oh, analytics is useless because it's actually off by this small margin where I do think for the most part, it tells us a pretty good story of, of especially on the extreme cases of a team that's really good or really bad. And just even watching these games, like you watch Winnipeg Jets games, is there any argument that they, like they're horrible defensively? Connor Hellebuck constantly gets left out to dry. It's like he makes an above average number of saves because he's really good and he won the Vesna. but don't tell me that that's good defense. Like it's not. Yeah, and and I think there's it's a strange kind of trade-off when when you're coaching because 
I think if you're if you're a smart coach, you're aware of what your team is good and bad at. And I think every NHL coach is, you know, is is a smart person and able to recognize strength and weaknesses. So then, you know, there, there's two ways you can go about it. You can either completely run away and try to hide your weaknesses and paper over it as 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 best you can, or you can kind of find, you know, ways to use your strength to cover your weaknesses or even, you know, doubling down on your weaknesses so that it's less of an issue. So, so let me, let me give you a few examples. Okay. So uh, we, we know that Winnipeg has lost a lot of their, their top D's in the past few years. So Bufflin's gone, Trub is gone. Uh, you know, Myers is not the great, the best player ever, but you know, he played a role. He's gone. Uh, ben Sherrod is gone. Um, yep. uh, so on and so forth. You know, Toby Enstrom is gone. So they basically turned over their entire decor, and I would say the new guys aren't as good as the old guys. And so what what they did is, um, if you look at uh, Corey Schneider's uh, tracking, they're uh, they're the most uh, forward biased team in the league at, when it comes to having their forwards carry the puck out of the zone. So they're telling the forwards, okay, well the D's aren't aren't as good now, so you're going to do more of the work. And obviously, at some point, you know, even though the forwards are their strength. Uh, the, the whole thing is going to break apart because now you're asking, you know, them to double dip and, and do more than they should. Right. And, and I think that hurts them. Uh, the second thing is now is that, you know, they're, they're looking to be very passive in the neutral zone. So they play a one, one, three, and it's really easy to get in the zone against them because they just don't want to get beat for a touchdown right away. So they're going to give you, you know, five yards, 10 yards, whatever. And then the third thing is uh, in zone. Now they're like, you know, we're, we're more passive in the neutral zone. So let's be more aggressive inside the D zone. So then you see a lot of chasing and then you see a lot of like, you know, last night I was watching them against Montreal. Montreal had a three on O and fully scored. So, yeah. so it, it's like, it, it leads to a hey, lot that of, was, hurt. that was by design. Paul Maurice drew that one up. In, in any case, it just leads to like a lot of disjointed stuff going on. And, and, you know, I wrote an article on my newsletter a while back that got a lot of people in Winnipeg fired up. And, and I'm just like, if I were forward playing for the Jets, like, like I got to be, you know, not, not quite thrilled with this right now because the D's just don't, they don't do anything. Like they don't help me on breakouts. They don't help me in transition, uh, you know, to sprint the weak side and to create options in the ozone. They're just standing at the point and, you know, they're drilling shots and tight shin pads. So I got a back check. Like, it's just, it's just not a very pleasant situation. Whereas for me, um, you know, so you have these, these who are not very good or especially not good at identifying threats in your own zone. So why don't you play more aggressive? Have him pinch a little bit more. Like I would much rather Logan Stanley pinch down in the ozone at the half wall like like on the Daryl Sutter coach team, instead of Logan Stanley backing off and then trying to play these on coverage. So it's like, you know, some teams, um, for example, like Calgary, um, you know, they're being more aggressive so that, the, you know, they want to cut down on their D-zone time. They want to cut down their, on their shots against. Whereas Winnipeg, it's like they recognize their weakness, but then they're just kind of playing They're going about it. it the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of like, remember when... Uh... When Mike Johnston was running the, the Penguins, and then they were struggling so bad, and then Mike Sullivan took over and got significantly better results with pretty much the same players, even though the personnel didn't change that much. And part of their issue at the, the start of that season was you just watch the tape and you'd see like every single time Crosby and Malkin would just have to go back deep in their own zone, retrieve the puck, and then have to make their way up the ice and do everything. 
And a lot of times they would get stopped because you have to pass through a lot of bodies and a lot of traffic, and it's not a very sustainable way. You'd much rather be getting them the puck in space quickly in transition. And then Mike Sullivan came in and implemented this renowned system of let's play fast rather than skating fast, where you're just constantly moving the puck up the ice and got significantly better results. And I do see that a bit with the Jets too. Like, like obviously the talent has eroded over time. If you compare the year they made the Western Conference final, no one's expecting those results where they were an analytics darling and everyone loved them in terms of the underlying metrics. But I do think they're, they're going about it the wrong way in terms of what they're trying to accomplish and how they're trying to cover those flaws because a lot of it is they're just not allowing those defensemen to, to do anything. And that seems like that's not an ideal way to play as, as you illustrated. Well, speaking of defensemen not, not being allowed to do anything, you know, we don't know if we, we, we don't need to go further than uh, Rasmus Dahlin and, and Buffalo. Yeah. That's sad. I did a full podcast on the Buffalo Sabres. I don't know if I, if I want to. It's depressing. Let's not talk it's... about that, but, but really like, you know, if we're talking about how to put players in, in their, um, you know, in, in, in a place to succeed or, you know, uh, playing to their strength. It, and it's like, it's exactly that. Like if, if you have, you know, a player who's used to being offensive and having the puck and stuff like that, and who's not too good at defending, you can either tell them to get better at defending or can tell them to get better at attacking so that they have to defend less. And generally speaking, uh, you know, when you get to such a, a high level, it's difficult to really make progress on on your weaknesses because they're always going to be your weaknesses. So then it's probably a, a better bet to double down in your strength and your identity as a player and focus on that. Like, um, you know, that's why I think a lot of young defensemen, they kind of, they, they get put through the ringer because, you know, their whole lives, they, they're, you know, the coaches just kind of let them go. And, and then all of a sudden they get to a level against players who are better than they are. And then they got to change their games. So uh, a lot of guys don't survive that just because not only are you playing against tougher competition, but also now you're fighting yourself. You're fighting your own instincts. You're, you're second guessing yourself. Yeah. I guess, you know, not to stick with the jets, but the thing that did bug me was, uh, you know, Mark Shifley was asked about this. And one of my biggest pet peeves is when, uh, a media reporter goes to a player knowing exactly what they're going to say and basically like tricks them into being like, so those analytics, huh? And then they get the sound bite they're hoping for, which is the players saying analytics are stupid. And then people just run with it and be like, see, even the players think it's stupid. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that Shafley, who does seem by all accounts to be like a, ma- a massive hockey nerd was saying like, I'd rather just watch the games, which I completely agree with by the way. Like I, I've totally come around on this. I, I think like I watch an insane amount of tape these days because there's so much stuff that happens that I'm really curious. Like I look at the numbers and then I'm like, huh, that's an interesting trend. And then I just go back and just watch either that player shifts or that team's uh, games on an instat hockey. And I'm like, oh yeah, why is this happening? And I think that's the the sweet spot of, of sort of blending these two things, right? Where we look at sort of like these macro trends of either why a team is performing a certain way or why a player is struggling or doing well. And then you actually look at the tape to try to figure it out as opposed to just exclusively using one of them because it's, it, it's, it's impossible. Like you're, you work this video coach and, and, and now you, you break down a ton of tape and work with players and stuff. Like there's a certain number of hours in the day and it's impossible to watch every single player and every single game. It's just not humanly possible. And so for that to be your strategy and to base all your opinions off of what you see in, on, on tape, it, it seems like, 
not a very sustainable formula for analysis. Yeah, well, you know, regardless of, of what Shifley says, I, you know, I'll give you an idea of how I work with players because that's how I would work with a Mark Shifley. You know, not necessarily on the analytics part of the game, but just to break down his own game and to kind of show him a way to to get better and and also to kind of keep playing to his strength. So, you know, I don't use a ton of you know what you would call you know the the Corsi stats with my players. Um, but what I do work with is a lot with puck touches. So the way that that we do this is obviously, you know, you can have the puck in, in any of the three zones, uh, O zone, D zone, or neutral zone. You can have the puck inside or outside of the dots. And, you know, the simplest breakdown I could offer a player is you have a certain success rate when making plays in all of these areas. So, you know, if you think about a guy like Zach Hyman, you know, he makes a lot of outside the dots touches in the ozone because he, he's looking to get the puck down ice. He's looking to win battles down low, cycle the puck, and then eventually funnel to the net, right? Whereas a guy like Mark Shifley, well, if, he, if he's looking to play off the rush, then I would care about his ability to get into the middle on the breakout or in transition or in the ozone. So for him, it's like, you know, how many touches is he getting total, but then how many touches is it inside versus outside and how many successful versus how many failed plays? So you know, it's not the type of analytics that we're familiar with, uh, with the NHL's real-time stats tracking, but when working with individual players, this is how I would break down a player's offensive game. And this, I, I suppose, is a form of analytics because, you know, I've studied um, players such as uh, Jack Hughes and uh, Alexi Lafreniere on my newsletter. And it, it, it's stunning because, you know, you have these highly touted prospects come in and you know that, you know, in terms of their vision, their hand skills, their shooting, their skating, they're way above average, but then they come in and initially they struggle, right? Like, you know, Jack Hughes and Capuacaco, they were the top two picks, two of the worst NHL players last year. Why? And the reason is because, um, you know, the, the, the bad Corsi or the bad expected goals come from a lower success rates on puck touches. Because these offensive players, they're used to having, let's say, 80% success rate. But as soon as you go, you go down to you know, 60, 50, 40, then your entire game collapses and you know, your expected goal is into the 40s and 30s. So you know, for, for, for an individual player that you know, I, I work with a handful of guys every week, these are the things that we're talking about. And, and the core C or the expected goals or you know, their own goals and assists, the, the plus minus, that's going to take care of itself if you're able to get a lot of puck touches in good areas and have a high success rate. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And, and certainly like kind of um, looking for the explainers, like I think a big one for me is the idea of either, let's say a specific player, like them being bad defensively versus them performing poorly defensively, right? I think those are two entirely different concepts. And I think it's very dangerous to mistake one for the other. And a great example is Connor McDavid last season versus this season, where he had atrocious defensive numbers. And you look at him and you're like, all right, there's no reason why Connor McDavid should be bad defensively. But at some point, you are what the numbers say you are. And this year, his numbers are significantly better. And it's very easy. You just look at the tape and you see like, all right, well, you know, it's certainly still attacking off the rush in his trademark style, but especially in the minutes where he was playing with Jesse Poliarvi and Ryan Nugent Hopkins, they had a much more sort of uh, structured ozone identity where they were getting the puck in, 
keeping the puck on his stick as opposed to having to waste energy chasing it and having these sustained offensive zone possessions. And then guys like Pugliarvi were doing the dirty work and forechecking like crazy and getting them more opportunities and extending possessions. And that's like a very easy thing to sort of see compared to last year where they were playing a very different way and you're getting wildly different results on based on how you play. And so for me, uh, that's like a great sort of intersection between those two that can kind of explain sort of what the numbers are telling us. Cause you can, you can cut them any way you want and make them say whatever you want to say. It's up to you as, as an analyst or as a coach or, or a player to figure out why it's happening and how you can change it to optimize your performance. And here's another area that I've been really interested in for, for the past uh, almost six months now, but it's the history of the game. So when I, when I look at uh, uh, McDavid playing with uh, Pula Yarvi, like I'm, I'm reminded of Gretzky playing with another Finnish winger because what would happen in, in the eighties is uh, like McDavid Gretzky would often fly the zone or he'd often cheat for offense. And actually in the D zone, it's Yari Curry playing, you know, in that center spot for him. And, and they, you know, so, so Gretzky would leave the zone early. Curry would make a stop defensively work with Glenn Anderson, the D's, and then find, Gretzky for, you know, a, a stretch pass. And then Gretzky is going to delay in the off uh, in, in the neutral zone, get the entry and then, you know, create a scoring chance. So I actually find like a lot of where hockey's going, it's where hockey's been before. Um, you know, obviously I, I have a new ebook out, out called the uh, hockey tactics retrospective. Uh, and it's focused. The, the first part is focused on uh, 1975 through 1986 and, you know, you look at the Soviets. Well, that's what Toronto's doing with the puck. Uh, you look at uh, Calgary's 1-1-3. Well, now it's like half the league wants to play a 1-1-3. You look at Edmonton and, you know, Gretzky plays a lot like McDavid does now. You know, somewhat different because uh, Gretzky's more east-west and McDavid's obviously got that amazing north-south speed. Uh, you look at how, you know, Tampa persevered and added to their core. And, you know, it was the same story for the Islanders. And you look at how good, you know, the Habs dynasty was in the late seventies. So for me, it's like, uh, you know, you, you want to know where hockey's headed. Like you got to study where hockey's been. And like, I, I've been super into, you know, watching these old games on YouTube and then taking notes and taking clips and then, you know, uh, writing about it. Well, do you want to, do you want to do some plugs here as we uh, get out of here and put a bow on this conversation? Where can people get that book where they, what, what can they expect from it and, uh, and give us all those plugs. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if you don't know me yet, I think the best way to get to know me a little bit is to follow me on Twitter. So it's J H A N H K Y. And then once you follow me on Twitter, um, you know, check out my free newsletter, uh, on Substack. And then once, uh, you know, if you love the content that, that I'm sharing there, then you can check out my eBooks that are on sale for on uh, gumroad.com. So once you get on my Twitter, then uh, all, all the rest is going to be there for you. Um, you know, as, as someone who's really like, I first fell in love with the game by reading hockey books. So right now it's like, you know, I'm working with players remotely analyzing video, uh, but really like I'm writing the kind of stuff that 10 year old me would have liked to read. So, you know, so, so now that I'm back in the public sphere, I'm just doing stuff that's fun to me. And if you find that fun as well, then I, I love to, I love to meet you. Awesome, man. Well, this was a blast. I'm glad we got to do this and, um, yeah, good luck with the book. I definitely recommend, uh, people go get it and, and nerd out on it. And let's, uh, let's get you back on the show sometime down the road. All right. Thanks, Dimitri. Take care. Cheers.
All right, that's going to be it for today's episode of the Hockeypedia Cast. Hopefully, you enjoyed listening. And if you did, uh, please consider taking a minute to go leave us a quick little rating and review. Uh, it takes a minute of your time. It's super easy to do, and it goes a long way towards helping us out. And I personally greatly appreciate it. You can just leave us the five stars if you've got some time and are willing to do so. You can also drop us a note there and let people know either what you enjoy about the show or why you recommend they check it out themselves. And it helps us a lot moving forward in terms of the the ratings. So. Thank you to those of you that have done so already, and thank you uh, in advance to those of you that will do so moving forward. Um, we're going to get back to doing more more podcasts here. Uh, I'm sure many of you noticed, and I apologize that we only did a couple shows in February. Uh, personally, I was a bit preoccupied in adjusting to my new writing gig at Elite Prospects Ringside. If you haven't checked out the website there and the work we're doing, I, I really highly recommend you do so i'm really proud of the work that's on the site on a daily basis not only the stuff i do myself where i put out uh, one or two new pieces a week but all the stuff we've got out there we've got so many deep dives and interesting video breakdowns and analysis uh by just some really awesome voices in in the hockey community so um i know there's a ton of things to subscribe to these days and not everyone will be able to do so right now but if you can and you're kind of on the fence and thinking about it just give it a shot. Use the promo code I love EP, uh, EP for ringside, maybe also Elias Pedersen. It gets you two free months on an annual subscription. And we've got content on there that's deeper and more thoughtful than, than you'll get anywhere. And I truly believe that. So um, I guarantee once you get that subscription, you'll be on there every day. You'll be soaking it all up. You'll be reading all the content. You won't be disappointed. You're going to get the bang for your buck. And so yeah, go check it out. So thanks for listening to today's show. We're going to be back next week with another episode. And then we're going to really ramp it up here as we get towards the trade deadline and the sprint towards the postseason. So until then. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO cast.